Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. In the last episode, we looked at the dramatic first year of the Korean War. The war began on June 25th and lasted until July 27th, 1953, when the Korean Armistice Agreement was signed. That agreement brought the fighting to a close and it created the Korean Demilitarized Zone, more commonly known as the DMZ. And the agreement also allowed for the return of prisoners. So, a war that lasted three years and a month at a horrific cost of around three million lives. Many accounts of the war basically end in mid 51. That first year was a roller coaster of events and fortunes. So, it's not a surprise that the stalemate of the last two years tends to be ignored. But not by Formosa Viles. So it might seem that Taiwan isn't going to play any role in this second part of the conflict. I mean, after all, MacArthur was relieved of duty in April of 1951, and he was the one who'd been pushing hard for Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists to be brought in for a wider war with China. But in fact, Taiwan did play a big part in shaping events and in making the war drag on as long as it did. Yes, our story today relates to Chinese POWs. Negotiations for the armistice dragged on because of deadlock over the repatriation of prisoners, in particular the fates of 21,000 Chinese prisoners, communist Chinese. Right. And that story takes place mostly on an island in Southeast Korea, about 30 kilometers from the city of oh, what today is called Busan, but was once called Pusan. This island is called Koje, Koje Island. So Koje Island was home to the largest POW camp by far in South Korea. The Koje prisoner camp grew in a matter of months to, in June of 51, perhaps 146,000 POWs, mostly North Koreans, of course. The U.S. 8th Army, a fighting force with other things on its plate, got the job of running the camp. 146,000 POWs. Woo, this is a big job. Uh, you're running an increasingly crowded, like, tenth city. And, of course, this is hard when you're also badly understaffed. Manpower was lacking in both quantity and quality. A lot of the men were basically unwanted elsewhere. Usually they stayed in watchtowers and seldom went into the camp itself. Much of the policing was done with the assistance of the prisoners. North Korean compounds run by North Koreans, Chinese compounds generally divided into pro and anti-communist soldiers, and a civil war of a kind going on. Well, that sounds like a bit of a mess. But when it came to the Chinese prisoners, there was some help by nationalist personnel quietly recruited from Taiwan. As we mentioned last episode, the Americans and other United Nations forces had a language problem. Their Chinese populations back home were overwhelmingly non-Mandarin speakers, so they used nationalist personnel from Taiwan as interpreters and in various other roles. At Koje, they had interpreters, interrogators, and other staff, uh, such as teachers who ran some educational classes for the prisoners. 
The Americans had lousy intelligence on what was happening in the camp, but not Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists. Their workers were reporting back to them on everything going on. And also shaping events. I'll give an example. When the anti-communist POWs heard about peace talks starting, they worried they'd be forced back to the PRC and they start writing petitions, petitions written in blood, pleading not to be betrayed. Uh, They were promised freedom and that should be kept. And how do these petitions get from the camp outside to the press and influence world opinion? The nationalists working in the camps help smuggle the petitions out. Mm, Written in blood. Wow. So POW repatriation is going to become the biggest issue for ending the war. And Taiwan has a front seat. Yes. And they got help by the Americans introducing a re-indoctrination program. Right. Re-indoctrination rather than just plain indoctrination because the soldiers had already been brainwashed by communist indoctrination. Yes, especially the former nationalist soldiers back in China after they got captured and then absorbed into the PLA. This time in the Korean camps, reindoctrination entails classes about democracy, government and such. And of course, the Chinese prisoners are being taught by nationalists from Taiwan. Uh, This program is not a good match for the Chinese or or their situation. It's really for the Koreans. Or the what what do you mean? The premise of the re-indoctrination is that Korea is going to be unified, not a North and South, an intact Korea under the UN's control. This re-education is for North Koreans to understand democracy and such, uh, to make them uh, anti-communist, prepare them for a new democratic country. Right. So they were still believing at this point that Korea was going to be one country. All right. So Mm -hmm. not originally aimed for the Chinese. And once it's clear, however, that the Korean peninsula is going to be divided, it doesn't really make sense for the Koreans either. If you re-indoctrinate POWs, they're just going to be re-indoctrinated or worse when they get sent home, right? Yes, but sometimes policies take on a life of their own and are hard to reverse. With unfortunate consequences. At the start of peace talks in 1951, there was confidence that things could be wrapped up relatively quickly. So everything was pretty much settled in 1951, except for the prisoner question. Now, the possibilities for prisoner release are as follows. A straight all for all a one-for-one swap, or letting the prisoners choose. If you're following the Geneva Convention, however, you just follow the simple all-for-all principle. The Geneva Convention stipulates that prisoners are to be repatriated, that is, allowed to return home. And because in the wake of World War II, this had been drawn out, there was a 1949 amendment to the Geneva Convention which addressed the issue, and it stated... Prisoners of war shall be released and repatriated without delay after the cessation of active hostilities. So fast repatriation, no choosing to stay, no one-for-one swaps, all the POWs returned regardless of number differences. The Americans are warning, however, that some Chinese POWs will face persecution if they go back to China. So by February of 1952, Truman, U.S. President Truman, has made up his mind and he's decided it will be voluntary repatriation. 
voluntary repatriation, prisoners getting to choose. Uh, This will apply to the North Koreans as well, but uh, this policy is driven by the issue of Chinese POWs. But this voluntary repatriation won't fly with the communists. And that means a delay in getting not just the Chinese POWs home, but the Koreans and the U.S. and other U.N. member prisoners back. So essentially, this means a delay in ending the war entirely. Yeah, uh, war drags on. uh, Fighting continues. The Americans insist on voluntary repatriation. And finally, they get their way. There's a big unknown at this point regarding this voluntary repatriation. The question being, how many Chinese POWs are going to choose to go back to China? Washington believes Beijing doesn't have too much to worry about. There are perhaps a core of 3,000 anti-communists. These are mostly former nationalist soldiers. Admittedly, yes, a lot of indoctrination has been going on in the camps but the great majority will choose to return to China. And the number, right? The ratio is very important because it's a judgment on the two Chinas, almost like a vote. Chinese people voting as they've never had a chance to elsewhere to decide on which China is better, the PRC or the ROC on Taiwan. And after months and months of arguing, now it's April of 1952 and we get to the actual day, the screening process. So the screening process was designed by the Americans to get as many prisoners to choose to go back to China as possible, because this would avoid embarrassing China and would make a final peace settlement easier. Because the Americans had become aware of Taiwan personnel being an unwelcome influence, they had recently had them removed. The Americans needed new uh, interpreters. They found some Chinese-speaking Americans. These were ethnic Chinese, uh, but mostly sons of missionaries. Okay. So uh, the screening process would work like this. A prisoner goes into an interview booth by himself, and the other prisoners are not able to overhear the proceedings. These missionary boys will ask each prisoner seven questions in Chinese. And here are the questions. So question number one. Will you voluntarily be repatriated to communist China? Okay, notice uh, there's no choice of Taiwan there. No, okay. Question two, will you forcibly resist repatriation? Hmm, so not just resist, but um, forcibly resist. Yeah, and this had been known policy for a while, which seems like an encouragement to violence in the camps. Yeah, okay, so... Question three is also kind of creepy. Have you carefully considered the impact of such actions on your family? Ooh. Mm-hmm. Question four. Do you realize that you may remain here at Koje, the island, right? You may mm-hmm. remain here long after those choosing repatriation have returned home. Another obvious attempt to influence the choice. Yeah, this is really biased. Amazing. So question five. Do you realize that the United Nations cannot promise that you will be sent to any certain place? Any certain place. Damn, (laughs) that wording. It's basically saying no promises that you're going to Taiwan. Yeah, they're trying to definitely shove them in one direction. So Mm -hmm. question six, are you still determined that you would violently resist repatriation? Mm. Question seven. What would you do if you were repatriated in spite of this decision? 
How do you interpret that last one? Um, I guess they're asking, like, how violently will you resist? That's the only thing、mm-hmm. I can think of. Yes, I think the prisoner would need to say something dramatic, like,、uh, "I'll kill myself. I'll keep trying to escape until I do, or I'll fight to the death." Yeah. So、uh, after those questions, right? If the prisoner said that he wanted to go back to communist China, well, the interview was over, and he got taken away. But there was still intimidation and danger in that. The lack of control meant getting the fifty meters from the booth to the the gate, and a, a, a truck had the possibility of attack from prisoners. This lack of control that the Americans had over the prison didn't back up the the stance of those questions. The interview screening might have encouraged repatriation, but the camp environment certainly did not. So before the screening, and as the screening was taking place. There was a lot of violence to make sure that people made the right choice, and the violence was directed especially at so-called turncoats. So by that we mean those who had sworn to go to Taiwan and had even been tattooed, but now we're saying that they were pro PRC. Yeah, these tattoos were、uh, pro-nationalistic, anti-communist slogans. Some had got them in the camp willingly to show their loyalty, but many had been forcibly tattooed by their fellow prisoners. These tattoos would, of course, be a problem if the men went back to、uh, China. Yeah, you're not going to get along great with a bleep、uh, the Communist Party tattoo on your arm.、Hmm. Uh, so, if you changed your mind, right? If you expressed a change of mind, you you've looked at a there was a heavy price. Some prisoners were beaten. There were、uh, reports of hundreds being wounded and also some deaths. Many, this is pretty gross. They had their tattooed skin cut off. The tattoos with the pro-nationalist, anti-communist slogans, and there was this notorious prison leader by the name of Li Da'an, who was front and center of, in this cutting thing. He removed the tattooed skin off the suspect prisoners and swallowed the bloody pieces. I guess for effect. Wow. The chaos in Kojai—it's astounding negligence on the part of the camp authorities. I don't want to make excuses for it, but it's worth remembering、uh, how bad the POWs up in North Korea had it. Just over seven thousand Americans were captured, and two thousand seven hundred of them died in captivity. Wow, that's more than a third. Yeah, nearly forty percent、uh, through a lack of food, shelter, and medicine. And from brutal physical and psychological treatment. So I guess it's no surprise that when the American POWs got to choose whether or not they wanted to go home, despite years of brainwashing, only twenty-one chose not to be repatriated to the United States. So Eric, speaking of choice and numbers, the counting from that Kojai screening,、uh, the numbers are in. Fourteen thousand declared themselves to be anti-communist. They didn't want to go back to China. Okay, let me get those numbers right. About twenty-one thousand Chinese prisoners in total.、Mm-hmm. Two thirds, fourteen thousand, want to go to Taiwan, and just a third, or seven thousand, want to go back to communist China. Yep, and that ratio、uh, was a bombshell for the Americans. Beijing is going to be embarrassed and very angry. Yeah. So when the screening numbers reached the top military and civilian officials in Japan and the U.S., well, they were shocked by the high percentage of anti-repatriates. They're saying this can't be right. There must have been coercion, and yeah, I mean that's how it looks. Twice as many Chinese choosing to go to Taiwan, 
rather than return home to China. So think about this for a second. It's only the early 1950s. The whole situation has only changed recently. Mm -hmm. And even if Taiwan was a more attractive place, I don't know, for democracy, freedom or whatever, China is still your home, right? You've got your family, Mm -hmm. your friends, your life in there. It's strange. And Taiwan might not be that attractive, actually. It's likely to be invaded very soon, uh, which means more fighting. Right. But that two to one ratio, it makes Taiwan very happy, but it doesn't look good for the Americans because it suggests a fair amount of coercion for this voluntary repatriation. And so the Americans wonder, well, um, should we do the screening again? Rescreening was impractical. Uh, it would take time to remove the element of fear from the camps. And during that time, there'd be violence, bloody riots. So an obvious solution would be to remove the violent anti-communist leaders. But that's easier said than done because the authorities know so little of what's going on in the camps. They don't really know who to remove. There was some rescreening done, but not thoroughly. I think about 200 prisoners changed their earlier choice, this time opting for the PRC. Mm, 200 fewer from 14,000 is a tiny fraction. Yep. Come resumption of armistice talks in Panmunjom, the PRC negotiators get a nasty shock. Just 5,100 Chinese would be going home. Uh, It's a much lower number than they had been led to believe. By comparison, more than half of the North Koreans uh, chose to go home. Hmm. So Beijing says uh, we want our soldiers rescreened, but U.S. President Truman wasn't prepared to do so. And Truman made a public statement and was very clear, I quote, to agree to forced repatriation would be unthinkable. It would be repugnant to the fundamental moral and humanitarian principles which underlie our actions in Korea. We will not buy an armistice by turning over human beings for slaughter or slavery, unquote. So the Korean War goes on. Not good for the people of South Korea and especially North Korea. The North is getting heavily bombed, so they're bearing the brunt of this failure to come to peace. And this causes tensions between North Korea and China. The North Koreans want to end things. They want to accept this voluntary repatriation deal. But Mao Zedong doesn't, and Stalin sided with Mao. And Stalin is the ultimate boss. Yes, he is or was while he's alive, of course. Stalin died on March 5th, 1953. So Zhou Enlai, the uh, PRC premier, right? He goes to Moscow for Stalin's funeral. And the Soviets tell Zhou Enlai, hey, you need to relent on this demand for prisoners, for all of them to be returned. Just, you know, let's get this over with. Mao Zedong had been taking Soviet orders for decades, and once more, he did so. So the question now becomes how to back down with the minimum loss of face. Quite a clever solution, I think. Uh, The non-repatriation prisoners, they need to undergo a period of explanation. I think this is listening to some communist sales pitch. And they need to be processed through a, a middleman, a neutral nation. A neutral nation. The first one comes to mind would be Switzerland. <laughs> no, India. India. Okay. Um, but weren't they part of the whole UN force in Korea? And then they'd also fight a war with China just a decade later. Yes, uh, but they're pretty neutral and acceptable, uh, friendly with the Soviets. 
their UN contribution was a medical team, not military. Anyway, uh, India agrees to the plan and sends 6,000 soldiers to be a custodian force to look after the prisoners of war and handle the repatriation process. This isn't on the original island, though, right? No, uh, the demilitarized zone, Panmunjom, it's a village just north of the dividing line for the border, the site where the armistice was signed. But the prisoners refused to be transported up there. The Americans needed Chiang Kai-shek's help to sort this out. He composed a handwritten message and a recording to promise the men that they would not be tricked. They'd be coming to Taiwan. And this worked. Oh, so they were worried they were being led into a trap, I see. Mm -hmm. So it's January 1954. The soldiers get a return to Taiwan, as the nationalists called it. But return to Taiwan is not exactly accurate. But it was for two of them. There were several Taiwanese POWs. So they're originally from Taiwan. They had joined Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Army, been sent to China, captured or surrendered to the communist, absorbed into the PLA, and then sent to Korea and captured. Three POWs, two chose to return to Taiwan, but one chose China. What an amazing cycle of uh, allegiances or forced. You can hardly even imagine that. Taiwan, Mm. China, KMT, communist, Korea. Mm. Wow. And we really have to say thank you to a book by David Chang Chang. It's called The Hijacked War. It's an excellent book just recently published. And it gave us some details about the trio of these Taiwanese uh, POWs. The oldest was a man named Wang Yingchang, a 20-year-old fisherman from the Penghu Islands. He chose to come back to Taiwan. As did Chen Yonghua. He was just 16 years old uh, when, in late 1945, right after the nationalist troops landed on Taiwan, he, uh, he'd signed up from a poor farming family. So the prospect of a salary and a generous monthly rice ration attracted him. He was sent to China, deserted, uh, but was caught and found himself in another unit, which surrendered to the PLA. He managed to escape and join up with uh, yet another nationalist force, but finally taken by the communists and later sent to Korea. The third Taiwanese, the one who chose to go to China instead of coming back to Taiwan, was Chen Qingbing. He's also another teenager, this time only 15 years old. He ran away from home, enlisted. This guy's family had been relatively well off, but the dad had been arrested for tax evasion and sadly in prison, he'd been killed in an Allied bombing raid. At the very end of World War II, uh, Qingbing had served in a local Japanese army unit, but then he was taken out of action with a bad case of malaria. Man, those, those are some hard luck stories uh, swept along in uh, huge currents of history this way and that, uh, never getting a break. Seriously, amazing. On the positive side, at least, uh, they survived and now yeah. they're going home or going to a new home. Having said that, though, the POWs who chose to return to China had it really bad. I mean, they deserved a ticker tape parade, a hero's welcome. But no, they ended up being held for nearly a year. Yeah. Communists back then and to this very day, very big on re-education. Generally with labor. So Chen Qingbing, the Taiwanese who became a communist, 
he married the daughter of the family that he was put with. Uh, it may have been the the first woman he met after the war. And like <laughs> other POWs, he was under very close scrutiny. None of them, for example, were allowed to serve again in the People's Liberation Army, the PLA. And then come the Cultural Revolution, Chen became a target. His wife as well, she was beaten and had a mental breakdown. So a very unfortunate choice uh, returning to China. Yeah, the POWs who chose Taiwan had it much better. The transport ships carrying them um, were met at Geelong Port by welcoming crowds. You know, those men were so valuable, so controversial that the Americans escorted them, uh, warships from the US 7th Fleet, uh, providing uh, protection just in case uh, they were attacked. The day on which the, the last POWs in Korea were released, January 23rd, it became an important public holiday. One, two, three, Freedom Day. Right. Uh, we like to do that with numbers here. So January 23rd, one, two, three. And every year their valor would be remembered. And further afield, the government would often cite the 14,000 anti-communist heroes as justification for why it should represent China instead of the communists. The, the logic was like this. Well, if the Chinese people could choose, they also would choose the Republic of China. And some of the POWs actually got to deliver that very message in person. They, they went on tours around the world. That uh, Taiwanese guy Chen Yonghua, for instance, he visited Japan on a speaking trip. But it wasn't all milk and cookies for the men. After arrival, they had a few months of uh, counseling and screening, making sure they weren't spies. Eric, if you'd been a soldier and then POW for a few years, what would you be looking to do once you were free? I'd, I'd quite like to be a sheep farmer up in the mountains. Uh, okay, that sounds <laughs> peaceful, John. But personally, I'm a relatively young man. I, I would like to be around uh, women. <laughs> After years of being crowded with a bunch of men, uh, not even seeing a woman, I think I'd like a girlfriend. Uh, obviously, I'd, I'd want a job as well. And uh, considering that my family is back in China, I'd probably want to start a new family here in Taiwan. Okay. You wouldn't be looking to sign up for more military service. No. But nearly all of them did. Uh, I think 97%, 97% of the physically fit men rejoined the nationalist military. And they weren't too happy about having to, quote unquote, volunteer. It's clear they were being used as propaganda, right? As examples of patriotic fervor. Yes. Also, being in the army, these former PLA soldiers could be more closely watched because there was always that doubt hanging over them. It's a dangerous combination. Um, if you're a POW feeling cheated, you're promised freedom, but then you're like press ganged back into the military and you're being closely watched. So on a moment of not being careful, you're grumbling to your fellow soldiers or you make some offhand remark about the nationalists or the generalissimo Jiang Kai-shek or, you know, even something simple like, oh, this food is lousy. And then you get investigated, punished, or you might just disappear. So reports say that many of these or some of these POWs were, were just broken men. They couldn't take military life. And sadly, suicide was not uncommon. But many of the POWs went on to have successful careers, uh, either in the military or after military service. They were teachers, professors, even uh, government officials, engineers, and uh, they went into business. So uh, before we close, what happened to that really nasty, cruel POW leader, Li Da'an, you know, the, uh, the, the skin eating guy? 
between the screening and repatriation, he was drafted by the Americans into a secret special forces unit, parachuted deep into North Korea um, near the Chinese border. And like so many of the men on those uh, intelligence and sabotage missions, he was captured. Uh, he spent more years in prison, a communist one this time, and he was executed. Okay. Well, I guess he, uh, he got his just desserts. Uh, mm. Wow. Prisoners and suicidal secret ops, nationalist troops used in covert operations because it was considered too dangerous for American soldiers to do them. And this happened uh, actually in, in quite a few places, Korea, China, and later in Vietnam. There are some fascinating stories related to these uh, special ops, but they will have to be topics for future episodes. Yep. Uh, I just want to uh, repeat that book uh, recommendation, The Hijacked War by David Chung Chang. You've been listening to Formosa Files, and we thank you for doing so. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. 